Good morning, Battleground. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 2. Uh, if you're a guest with us, thank you for for uh, being here this morning or listening online. Uh, we've, we're taking a two-week break from our exposition of Psalms to think about Jesus, the humble servant who is now exalted. So we're going to look at this for two weeks. We're going to look at verses 9 to 11 of Philippians 2 next week. But this week we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, looking at Jesus, the humble servant. And so as we stand in reverence for God's Word, I want you to understand what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see that God the Son took on a cross and He died. And He did this to reveal two things to us, two things we want to look at this morning. He revealed His character to us. And he did this by ransoming a people for God. So, so let's read it. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray this morning that as we look at your word, we would be changed by it. That we would remember that we had to be ransomed. And, and in doing so, your son revealed you, the very... God of the universe to us. So, Lord, teach us what you would have us learn and be today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we look at this text, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. It is this text teaching the church? Because remember, this is a letter that was written to the church, church in Philippi. Is this teaching that the church, them, and us what to believe or how to live. To understand this, we need to understand a little bit of the context, but in other words, is this both doctrinal, what it's teaching us, or is it ethical, how should we live? The answer is yes, it's both. But to really understand this, Philippians 2, 5-11, most people believe it's an early hymn, and, and if that is, it's pretty neat because what that gives us a little glimpse into is the very earliest Christian church at worship. And it teaches us what they thought about Jesus. And so this was simply something that they already believed. And so Paul makes some assumptions about Jesus, and we will too today. Uh, but to understand this, if you got your Bibles, look back with me to verses 1-4. to four, And what you'll see is that there's an ethical tone to this. In other words, Paul is concerned about how the church is living. You'll notice in those verses, he's telling them to avoid rivalry and conceit and instead pursue humility and selflessness. That's a big word this morning. Especially in how they care for each other. So there's a danger this morning that we could assume ourselves. It's already being assumed in our culture and in many churches today. I'm going to give you a, a term and then I want to explain it. The danger of both the church and the culture is to look at Jesus with a 
moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view of God. So what does that mean? Well, you simply have to break the words down. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. They, people believe in a God, but they believe in a moralistic God. Just think about it. Bad people go where? To hell. Good people go where? To heaven. Religion, and if you're in the biblical south, you would say Jesus exists to help me be good so that I don't go to where? To hell. Therapeutic. What does that mean? Well, God exists to help me have my best life now. Think about it. If you go to the... When do you think about the chiropractor? Do you think about him on Tuesday when you're feeling good? Or do you not think about him when you wake up with the crick in your neck and you, or you can't straighten up and all of a sudden now you think about the chiropractor, you call him, make an appointment and go. Many people see God, they see Jesus that way. When I need him, I will make an appointment. When I don't, he simply doesn't factor into my life. Besides, we're all basically good people and that Jesus exemplifies love and compassion. I just need to follow his example. I'm okay. Besides, God helps those who what? Help themselves. The danger of this, brothers and sisters, is this may be a religion, but it's not Christianity. It's not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die to make good people better, but to wake the spiritually dead. This is critical because Paul is using the person and the work of Christ to motivate God's people towards unity, towards selfless humility towards each other. And he begins in verse 5 when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours because you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus must be, must be your Savior this week. We'll see next week. Your Lord next week before He can be your example. You cannot follow unless you first kneel. That's the point of the text. And this Paul is agreeing with James who's... Jesus, if Jesus is not our example, then our faith is barren. We just have this dead orthodoxy that doesn't lead to how we live. On the other end, the other tension, if Jesus is only a good example, well, let's see what Scripture says. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We can't begin to think about the resurrection unless we go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verse 20 next week. Look at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. A critical verse. It says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus is just a good example on how we should live in this life, if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no bigger picture, then we're pathetic. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 1. Paul uses the term partnership, fellowship, in Christ, both His death and resurrection, to help us understand what it means to be in Christ. Look at verse 1. There's an assumption going on here in, in the community. Now it's came into the church that the more you sin, the more grace abounds so that you can just sin and do what you want to. That's, that belief's alive and well today. Nothing changes. We see here 
Verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, By no means. How can we have died in sin, still live in it? Listen to what he says. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? Jesus, were baptized into His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Jesus' person, His attitude, and His action determines my character, my attitude, and my actions because I am one with Him, united in Him, including His very death and resurrection. That's good news this morning. But what Paul is desiring to see is a unified community mindful of Christ. And so he had, he challenges them, this is important this morning, for the church in Philippi and us to adopt Jesus' death as their central outlook on life. So we want to look at Jesus' incarnation and His obedience and His death, but we want to begin somewhere. Jesus is God the Son. This is where He starts when He challenges them to have the mind of Christ. And in verse 6 it says, Who though He was in the form of God. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me. You'll see the string of John text there. Let's look. Let's work backwards. Let's look at John 8.58. Now we're going to come to this more clearly next week, but I just want you to see what Jesus said about Himself and notice how His enemies took it. John 8.58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at Him. Who did? The religious leaders and the people understood that He just claimed to be the I Am. So Jesus is claiming to be the I Am of Exodus. Now flip back with me a couple pages in your Bible to John 5.18. Again, notice what He says. Notice the, notice the response. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, Look at what it says, making himself equal with God. So he is the I am. He is equal to the Father. And John begins with clarity in John 1 verse 2 says that he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Creator. Equal with the Father. Look at verse 6. Who though, this is what we're getting to. It's an important word today. It's repeated over and over. Who though he was in the form of God. That word is morphe. It means the inner, essential, abiding nature of a person. The inner, essential, abiding nature of a person. I want you to see this used in application of us in Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 2. I love this because it uses two words. It uses the word conformed, and then it uses the word transformed. And that's helpful to understand this word, morphe. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so you have the word conformed, which is something that's more external. And you have transformed, there's our root word. You see the word formed there, morphe. He's talking about something that's inner, the very 
character must be changed. He's not saying we just need to change our external actions. He's saying that now, take that and apply this to God. He was, in His very nature, Jesus was God. John 1.14 John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 18. It's critical. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In other words, Jesus reveals to us God. How did He reveal to us God? We see our next point. Through Jesus' humble incarnation. Look at the middle of verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Look at the verse 6 to start with here, the end of verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want you to see Jesus' humility. This is probably one of the most critical things I want you to see about the text this week. This word, a thing to be grasped, means to take an advantage. This is a sharp contrast with the gods of that day. If anyone has ever studied Greek mythology, you know that that, their whole god, this pantheon of gods system was built on these gods and demigods who took advantage of humans. They exploited them. Why? Because they could. Here's a quote. Many of the gods consorted with humans Though Zeus is perhaps the most notorious for abducting unsuspecting humans for sexual gratification. This was the gods of their day, but Jesus revealed himself in humility because he did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. That's what that's saying. I love the New Living Translation here that says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, Jesus Christ, when He was incarnated, refused to hold on to His rights and prerogatives. This reveals the character of the biblical God in sharp contrast to the gods of the day. This is, was the character of Christ because it's the character of God. Jesus did not use His deity to take advantage of us, but to serve us. That's what verse 7 is saying when it says, but He emptied Himself by taking the form, the morphe, the essential nature of a what? Servant. How did He do that? He emptied Himself. That word empty there means to nullify as if no account. The word servant here is slave. That His will was bound up in the will of someone else, His Father. Look at Mark 10.45. helps us understand this so clear. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I know I quote Spurgeon a lot. I love Spurgeon. A sermon that he preached on this text said, The way to heaven is downhill. That's what we see Christ doing. Humbling Himself through Jesus' incarnation. We see this at the end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8 says, He was born in the likeness of men. And then verse 8 says, 
and being found in human form. That's our word again, form. Likeness in verse 7. His essential identity. If you would have been there that day and you would have asked anyone about Jesus, they would have said He was a man. Christ became human in every sense that makes one truly human. One person said, He that was always God became what He was not, man. If you look at Hebrews 4.15, we're very familiar with this passage. It says, Hebrews 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was truly man, yet without sin. You know, I love it when I see a passage that we've read, I've read a a thousand times, but then just see it in a new, fresh light. And Isaiah 9, 6 was one of those passages for me this week. A passage that Isaiah was prophesying both the now and not yet, and uh, the not yet was revealed in Christ when it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That, uh, what I want you to see there is it says, A child is born, a son is given. It reflects not only the humanity in the child, but the deity the king that would come through the Davidic line, the government would sit on his shoulders. In other words, he that is sovereign master over all of us became the servant for all of us. But exactly what did Jesus empty himself? What does that mean and what does it not mean? Let's just point out a couple of things. Some of these passages you're familiar with, you can just simply jot them down. You don't have to have to take time to, to uh, go to them. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches us that the one, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus is a standard of perfection. He's not just perfect. He's the standard of perfection of the divine law, the reflection of that. It reflects Him. It teaches us what God is like. And yet He allowed sin to be counted to His account and was punished as if He was sinful. In other words, He gave up His favorable relation to the divine law. And in 2 Corinthians 8 9, remember what it says that he who is rich became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. He gave up riches. We've already read one text that taught us Jesus gave up everything, his very life, when he came. And I love John 17, where the Lord's talking to his Father. He's looking forward to being with him. And we are reminded there that he gave up the fellowship and intimacy and the heavenly glory. Hebrews 5.8 teaches us that He gave up the independent exercise of His own authority. He learned obedience. God's Son did. So one might ask, well, how could He still be God? And this is important. Jesus, who was God, took up a lesser nature, man, so that He might willingly be humiliated for us A.W. Tozer says it this way, He veiled His deity. He did not void His deity. He added humanity. He did not surrender His deity. So there's a danger here in the world. And 
turn on your TV, you're going to see the, either the prosperity gospel, the word of faith gospel that seeks to enrich themselves by perverting the gospel. What they're doing there is ripping out the very incarnational DNA that Christ gave His people. He never exploited His people. He came and poured Himself out for their good. He gave Himself for His people. And that's the, that's the very heartbeat of, of true Christianity and how we differentiate the true gospel from a false gospel. Verse 6 and 7 has a very clear point that Christ was equal and unified with God the Father, yet He never used that to exploit His status, but instead humbled Himself so He would be our ransom. And He did this through His obedience. Jesus' humble obedience. We see that in, in verse 8 when we read He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus humbled Himself. Notice this in the text. Willingly. He humbled Himself. It was voluntarily. It was willing. His Father did not have to force Him. We see this clearly communicated in John. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verse 20, and you may want to mark that. We're going to come back to this text at the end. This gets of Peter not only speaking of what Christ did, but now it's beginning to apply it into our life as Christians of what we should expect and how we should live. In verse 20, 1 Peter 2, says, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you get in trouble for doing something's wrong, what credit is that if you just put up with it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing to who? In the sight of God. Let's know what it says. This is, this is one of those clear, hard truths. It's just true this morning, verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example. Why? So that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but did what? This is, this is the critical part. Listen. But continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In other words... He trusted His Father, so He obeyed His Father. This is what the kingdom looks like. Humble obedience is the way of Christ. It is the way of His kingdom. In other words, those who live under His rule and reign, trust Him and obey Him. How did Christ do this? We should know this in the Gospel. He became our priest, which means He became our perfect mediator between God and us. He not only became our mediator, He became the sacrifice for our sin. Remember, sin created wrath. It creates not just a debt. It creates a problem with God. He paid that wrath. He removed it 
so that God could be merciful to us and He paid our debt. Sin creates debt and Jesus paid our debt. Sin creates a soiling of us in our very nature. Christ died to give us a new nature. Remember Isaiah? For it pleased God to crush Him. This is how He obeyed. And He obeyed, look at your notes, to the point of death. End of verse 8. Even death on a cross. I want you to see His humble crucifixion. If the Bible could underline something this morning, it would underline even death on a cross. His point is Jesus stooped lower than simply becoming a man because He humbled Himself, not just to any death, death on a cross. You say, well, why is it such a big deal? Well, in that day, the cross was the worst Rome could engineer. They had, that was an engineered death that they would administer with precision for maximum pain and maximum shame. Crucifixion was designed to take days before it brought death to his victims. They were generally tortured. The purpose of the torture was to, was to make the pain felt in every way imaginable. They wanted your, all your nerve endings to feel the pain before they impelled you on the cross. It involved blood loss, thirst, hunger, attack from wild animals, and ultimately suffocation, death by suffocation. And listen, as hard as that is to think about, and many movies have been made to illustrate that, that is a flea bite compared to the spiritual agony that our Lord went through on the cross. Remember the garden? He was praying for God to remove the cup. What was in that cup? It's really important. Is, was the cup the fear of the physical pain? No. Was it my sin? No. The wrath of God was in that cup. That unifiedness of intimacy and fellowship with His Father from all of eternity, His Father would abandon Him and crush Him so that He would pay the wrath that we deserved for all of our sins. There was a shamefulness to the cross. He would have been naked right off the ground in plain sight. Romans hated this. No Roman citizen could be crucified. Cicero said it this way, Let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was shameful not only for the Romans, but for the Jews. It was a curse. Remember Deuteronomy 21? It says, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, God the Son, died. I want you to get this this morning because this is the most important thing I want us to understand. Christ went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest precisely because such selfless love was an expression of His deity. Christ went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest precisely because such selfless love was an expression of His deity. Just... Think about this for a minute. Think about the first Adam. And we could put our name in that place. The first Adam was made in God's image, but Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God, but Jesus took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself, but Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent being God's servant. But Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected 
God's Word in sinful disobedience. But Jesus, He humbly submitted to God's Word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation, but Jesus overcame temptation. And not only that, He crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on the world. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced. And we will see next week that Jesus was exalted by the Father. So what can we take away today from this? Well, do I have a cross-centered mindset? You see, that was what Paul was concerned about in the text. That we would have the mind of Christ, the mind of the cross, as we live this life. And if we do this morning, then two things will be true and growing in our life. Our adoration to our Lord and our imitation of our Lord. So if you have your Bible still marked 1 Peter, turn back with me to 1 Peter. Look at verse 21. Remember what it says? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples so that you might follow in His steps. So I don't know whether you thought about that the first time, but let us spend a minute here just thinking about this. What is the implication of this text in our life? What does it mean to follow in His steps? Suffering. We oftentimes may want our leader's glory without following our leader's path. Jesus said in John 13, 16 that that's impossible. Remember what He said? He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We are Christ's servants. We are not greater for Him and He suffered. We are ambassadors for Christ. We take the message of the Gospel and we are not greater than Him. And if He suffered, we will suffer. Remember what John Gospel said, if they hate you, they're going to hate... If they hated me, they're going to hate you. We've heard it said, no crown without a cross, not in Jesus' life and not in ours. 1 Peter 2.24 reminds us that He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree. Why? This is important this morning. That we might die to sin and live for, and live to righteousness. That's, that's what it leads to. A desire. The cross mindset. To die to our sin. To die to ourself. And to live for righteousness. To live for Christ. To live for the good of others. By His wounds we have been healed. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you see Christ's selfless death as an expression of His deity? Such an important principle for us to know about God and about Christ this morning because it affects the way we live. God does not take advantage of our weakened condition and we should not take advantage of anyone else's. Are you following the following? Are you following the humble servant? Christ is to be imitated this morning. Not because He was good. Not because He was compassionate, merciful person. But because He is the Redeemer and He is our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we end this time together, we 
Thank you for this clear word today that though God could have came and judged us in, in your holiness and in your righteousness, you should have, God, but you sent your Son and you took on the form of man and he poured himself out for us on the cross. We thank you for that, Lord, that we would be both saved by it and changed by it and that we would now worship you not only how we respond now in worship, but how we live for you until you come. May, you, may that be true of us as we labor in the gospel together so that you might be glorified down here in our King's Mountain and to the world. May you make that true, Lord, in us and that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.